ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We've got the coalition fantasy that, you know, that nuclear is the solution to all our problems and every child will get a pony and a, you know, a cone of fairy floss. Then we've got the labour fantasy, which, we, which is we've got AUKUS but not a domestic nuclear industry yeah. in order to service it. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Welcome to the party room. I'm David Spears, national political lead at the ABC and host of Insiders, and I'm keeping PK's seat nice and warm while she takes a well-deserved break. And I'm joining you from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri Nations here at Parliament House in Canberra. And I'm Frank Kelly here on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation in Sydney. And David, there was a lot of reaction to the idea of Australian going nuclear get it, nuclear reaction. Uh, I'm talking about Chris Bowen. He's the Minister for Climate Change and Energy and he unveiled costings at the start of the week that show replacing retiring coal-fired power stations with small modular nuclear reactors would cost, wait for it, $387 eye-watering billion dollars. Why did he do this? That's It's an idea that the opposition is spruiking, this whole idea of small modular nuclear reactors in where coal-fired power stations have been. It's part of their attempt to discredit Labor's clean energy policies. Chris Bowen obviously thought he could shoot it down with dollars, mm. and we're going to talk about this a little later with Catherine Murphy, political editor at The Guardian Australia, because, yep, she's back and we're very glad of it. But, David, before we get to the politics of going mm. nuclear, you scored the goal of the week on Insiders on Sunday. That's what I'm naming it anyway. You spoke to Warren Mundine. He's a Bunjalung man and a leader of the No campaign. And he went a bit rogue with you when he not only supported changing the date of Australia Day, but also started talking treaty. These are two of the ideas the No campaign has absolutely weaponised in its attempt to defeat this referendum. Warren Mundine is clearly at odds with the No camp broadly, suggesting a no vote would open the gate to a treaty with First Nations people. So we're more likely to get treaties if people vote no. Yeah, because then we have to do the hard... On the 15th of uh, October, if it's a no vote, uh, you know, that's when the real work starts about, you know, as uh, Jacinda said, you know, the senator, she said, we've got to have accountability. We're spending billions of dollars every year and we're, and, and mm. according to the closing the gap, we've got, we're still not going places, so, so both, we've got both, to deal with yeah. that. So that's when the real work starts towards mm. a treaty, is what he was saying. It's a notable split from his Conservative No counterparts. What did that interview do to the No Camp strategy? Well, Fran, the, the No campaigners didn't exactly meet what Warren Mundine said with wide open arms and uh, have a sudden change of heart on treaties or the date of Australia Day. But look, Warren Mundine really has a long record here. He's argued for these things for a very long time. And... You know, in fact, he even wrote about them in his own book uh, that he wrote some years ago. So he can hardly back away from mm. them now. Uh, he'd be left with zero credibility. Yeah. Um, so the, the difficulty for the No campaign, though, as you point out, they've built a, a, you know, a great part of their case against The Voice by suggesting that it's going to lead to treaties, it's going to lead to a change in the date of Australia Day, all these all these things they, they clearly think um, that Australians don't support. Well, they and think here, they're scare campaigns, really, don't exactly. they? Exactly. It's about scaring Australians away from the voice. But here you have one of the leading figures of the No campaign saying 
not only there are they a good idea, something he supports personally, but more likely to happen if you vote no. Look, Peter Dutton made it clear that he certainly wouldn't be supporting any funding for a treaties mm. process. He calls it a lawyer's picnic. But worth pointing out, Fran, these treaty processes are already underway at a state level. And look, the reality is, whichever way Australians vote on The Voice on October 14, those processes are going to continue. Yeah, and actually, I'm going to spruik my other podcast here, David, because I'm doing a podcast with uh, the ABC Indigenous reporter Carly Williams called The Voice Referendum Explained. Mm. And in the episode that drops next week, there's a fair bit on treaties and, how, you know, what what that would mean, what the timeline is, that sort of thing. But things, I think, really took a bit of a turn over the past week in this campaign. The other leading Indigenous No campaigner, Senator Jacinta Nabajimpa-Price, addressed the National Press Club. And amongst other things she said, and I'm quoting here, the colonisation had a positive impact from Aboriginal Australians. Now, Hmm. that comment really unleashed a whole lot of anger and hurt and outrage from a spread of Indigenous Australians, really, who, you know, said it dismisses the reality of the Stolen Generations, for instance. The Central Land Council, based in Alice Springs, where Senator Price also lives, labelled it a denial of history. Noel Pearson, a leader of the Yes 23 campaign, rebutted the comments by saying the days of assimilation are over. The voice is about, you know, defining unity in this country as Indigenous Australians having a special but not a separate place. So for a change, David, it was the no-camp leadership that was distracted and fractured and with fractious messaging this week, wasn't it? Yeah, look, I think so. Although I reckon those comments from Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price about no negative impacts from colonisation, most on the no side, most of the leaders on the no side, Warren Monday was a bit more nuanced on this, but the rest of them really applaud that sort of sentiment. A lot of them have difficulty saying it out loud. Mm. So they welcomed an Indigenous society. Yeah, I think think this goes down a treat uh, with the more conservative view that, you know, there's more good than bad through white settlement and colonisation and, you know, that that Indigenous Australians need to uh, get over the grievance and and, and get on with it. I, I think that sentiment, I was there in the room at the National Press Club when she made these remarks, and I can tell you, a lot of the National Party ministers, her colleagues like Barnaby Joyce, Bridget McKenzie, David Littleproud, who are all sitting in the front row, really lit up. They applauded, they cheered yeah, they when cheered, she said didn't this. They? Yeah, Yeah, I wonder what it did for sentiment around this referendum with yeah. the um, Indigenous Australians, though, though I guess, you know, if you're talking about winning or losing, that's just a very small proportion of our population. I noticed the Indigenous Affairs Minister, Linda Burney, came out on them. She was very mm. strong on them. And then we got the Yes campaign um, launching a new ad, TV ad this week too. Will I grow up in a country that hears my voice? Will I live as long as other Australians? Will I get to go to a good school? Will I be able to learn my people's language? David, do you think the Yes campaign found a bit of its groove this week? I do. And look, that was a smart ad. You certainly can't accuse that one of being elites, um, you know, and some of the criticism that surrounded the John Farnham ad and so on. That one was a smart one. Kathy Freeman's endorsement too, from what I'm told on the yes side, you know, they're going to spend a bit of money making sure that's promoted into people's social media feeds. Those sort of endorsements from well-known, well-loved Indigenous Australians saying, look, we want this, uh, they reckon is, is you know, sim- simple uh, and effective. The polling though, I know, you know, we need to treat the polling with caution but it's still not great for the yes side. We had a Guardian essential poll uh, that had no voters in the majority for the first time at 51% Mm. uh, and far more responders were hard no's than hard yeses, 42% to 28%. I was speaking to someone in the yes camp 
yesterday, Fran, who told me that their internal polling has this week um, turned for the first time in a very, very long time. Now, it's not still not great, still doesn't suggest they're necessarily going to win this, but it was the first bit of positive news, uh, uh, you know, the worm turning, if you like. We'll see if the public polls, we'll get another batch of them on the weekend, whether they reflect that as well. But there's a little bit of confidence in the yes side that at least they've, they've bottomed out and turned the corner. Yeah, well, you know, the Prime Minister always said you want to be kicking with the wind in the final quarter. So the question is, is there a strong enough wind to, mm. to get them home in the face of all that one-way trend really for yes in the polls which has been going now but again just on this notion of them sort of getting their messaging a bit more focused I think and on the right track Linda Burney said this week she's the minister of course that the first thing she'll be asking the voice to advise on is a remote school attendance policy which they've spent 270 million dollars on since 2014 and the school attendance rates have gone backwards by a long way in remote communities and that sort of idea putting those sorts of ideas in people's minds that make people understand what the voice is supposed to be doing because it's gone, you know, you'd have to say the last few weeks has been way off track and mm. fighting about everything else except what The Voice is supposed to be doing. So, And yes. there was the whole idea of getting away from Parliament and a lot of those detailed questions and back to the, the simple pitch uh, in the community, which is what we're seeing more of from the yes side this week. Now, whether it's too late in the piece, you know, whether people have made up their mind, much harder to change people's minds once mm. they've made up their mind, all of this we know. But, you know, we'll see this. You know, it's, it's, we might have discussed before, there's a lot of differences between a referendum campaign and an election campaign. You don't bring your party baggage into which way you're going to vote necessarily on a on an issue question. So, yeah, we, we'll see. But, gee, they need everything to go right, don't they, oh, in, yeah. the next, in the final few weeks? Yeah, that's for sure. Hey, breaking news, as we record this podcast on Thursday morning, former Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, it's just been announced, has a new job. Mm. He's the chair of Goldman Sachs Australia. David, this is a very... Big job would come with a very big paycheck sure. and suggest to me he's not going to be running again for Kuyong. No, he won't be seeking pre-selection for Kuyong, at least for this coming election. I don't think it rules out uh, down the track another return, uh, possible return to politics for Josh Frydenberg, but not at the next election. And it obviously gets harder the longer you're out to get back in. Other people emerge as uh, potential leaders and so on. But yes, a, a big promotion um, the chair of Goldman Sachs, you're right, it would come with a, no doubt, a pretty healthy pay packet, more than you're ever going to earn in politics. <laughs> I think Josh Frydenberg is deciding here that um, the last year or so he's really enjoyed time with the family, time away from you know the toxicity of politics. Things ain't great for the Libs right now, obviously, in Canberra, and he, you know he's, he's best served by sitting this election out. This has an impact, though, on, on the Liberal Party. From what I understand, uh, Peter Dutton did uh, speak to him uh, this morning when this, or just before or just after this news broke. I understand the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, uh, did too, had a chat with uh, his old rival, Josh Frydenberg, to wish him well. It does have an impact on you know future wargaming in terms of who the leadership options are in the Liberal Party. If things go mm. really bad for Peter Dutton at the next election, what do they do? Well, they won't have Josh Frydenberg there in their ranks. You know, there'd be a question mark whether he'd win back the seat too. Yeah, I, I was think... just going to say, I mean, I, I know he certainly has been enjoying the change of pace and, as he says, walking the kids to school, that sort of thing. Mm. But, you know, do you think there also might have been a, a sense, he might have had a sense that he wasn't going to win the seat back this election? I think he was confident about his prospects uh, at winning the seat back. But, you know, you never know with these things. and. Uh, look, a point in political history, independents, once they win a seat at mm. a general election, different when they win it at a by-election, but when they win it at a general election, 
I don't think federally anyone's ever lost it at the next election. No, they tend to entrench, don't they? Yep. Look at Rebecca Sharkey. Yeah. Now, look, I don't know if all the Teals will necessarily be returned. You know, there was particular circumstances with Scott Morrison and where he was at with climate change and treatment of women issues and all of that that helped them last time. And they, they won't be there, those factors, uh, at the next election. But I think most of them probably will get back in. As for Kuyong, yeah, really hard to know. Uh, I don't think it would have been impossible for Josh Frydenberg, though, to win the seat, put it that way. Yeah. It still remains, I think, in many people's minds, a blue-ribbon Liberal seat. But as demographers point out, the age of, of people living there in that electorate has really changed. And that has more renters. Yeah, many more renters. And guess who that helps? Not the yeah. Liberals. No, that's and right. And maybe not Labor either. David, I think this is a perfect time to bring in Catherine. What do you think? Let's do it. <laughs> Catherine Murphy, political editor at The Guardian. Wonderful to have you back in the party room. Welcome. Thank you. It's delightful to be back. Murph, yes, it's fantastic to have you. Murph, politics went full nuclear this week when the Climate Change Energy Minister Chris Bowen unveiled that $387 billion price tag to replace retiring coal-fired power stations with nuclear, small nuclear modular power stations. This is an idea pursued by Peter Dutton and the opposition but dismissed by Chris Bowen. It's a unicorn and a fantasy, and somebody has to pay for it if they are really serious about this plan. Uh, so whether it's consumers or taxpayers, when you put the most expensive form of energy into the system, there is a massive cost to be paid. Now, we'll get to the why, Murph, but first things first, is the opposition serious about a plan for small nuclear modular reactors to be peppered across the country? Well, they're certainly developing a policy, or they say they are. Whether they're serious about the plan, I think, remains to be seen. Because obviously, you know, the, the coalition had a long opportunity in government to head down this path and elected not to. So let's just see, I guess, where this ends up. But certainly there's a lot of work around uh, this particular proposal. But if the opposition is to seriously advance nuclear as, as a proposition, then, uh, you know, Chris Bowen's sort of not right to say that it's a unicorn and a fantasy I think that's an overstatement, but he is entirely correct, 100% correct, to say that if the the uh, alternate government of Australia, the coalition, wants to advance a nuclear strategy, then it needs to come clean and pronto about several key facts, including, you know, and most particularly, how much, because nuclear is currently the most expensive form of energy available, taxpayers will be on the hook for many, many billions of dollars, not just, you know, two and a half billion, but mm. many, many billions of dollars. And also, you know, all all the research suggests that nuclear is basically unaffordable in the absence of a carbon price. Does that mean that the coalition is now in favour of a carbon price? It's really fascinating, I think, um, well, on, on, a, on a number of fronts, that the government is uh, putting this dollar figure out there, $387 billion. Uh, clearly, it doesn't think there's enough that's scary enough at the, already about mm. nuclear that it needs to add the, the cost in as, as the real driver here. Um, and it's interesting, when you ask Chris Bowen, press the government a bit on the ban on nuclear uh, in Australia, why do we still have that um, you don't ban something because it costs too much. That's mm. really for the market to decide. Mm. You know, energy companies, if the ban wasn't there, can decide whether it's too expensive or not. That's up to them. Well, right? there, look, there are there is a rationale for the ban. Look, if I were if I were mm. Chris Bowen and the government, I would I would just nix the ban. 
the, the rationale for the ban is safety yeah. because it's sort of like, look. Well, uh, it was in the wake of Three Mile Island since then yes. we've had Fukushima and people are nervous about it still. Well, and reasonably so. Mm. Yeah. I but mean, the government you know, won't use that argument now and why is that? Well, Because of the nuclear submarines, do you think? Well, well look, it's, it's more complicated now because we've sort of got twin fantasies kind of before us, David. I think we've got, we've got the coalition fantasy that... Uh, you know that nuclear is the solution to all our problems, and every child will get a pony and a you know a cone of fairy floss. And then we've got an isotope. The, the, and an isotope. <laughs> and then we've got the labour fantasy, which we which is we've got AUKUS, but not a domestic nuclear industry yeah. in order to service it. Right. So we sort of are at this collision of two fantasies. The ban exists because of safety, because uh, nuclear is you know is, has got serious whiskers on it in terms of a mm. of a, of an energy source. The problem is the climate change or the threat of climate change and global heating is so profound and so existential for humanity, we may, in fact, need all of the technologies this in order the, to yeah, confront it. Thing. I was listening to one of the Greens members of the, the British Parliament talking about this, and I think the Greens in Finland have yeah. shifted their position now yeah. they're in favour of nuclear power. It's, it's this whole argument that... Climate change is, is, is so diabolically yep. dangerous yep. that you've even got to consider some of these. It does have to be all of the above. Like, you know, it, the, the, the reason the Labor Party won't confront the ban is because uh, the Labor Party has a long and proud history of, mm. of anti-nuclear. Like, you know, Fran will remember uh, very well yeah. uh, all of the very passionate party debates about the regulation of the industry, right? So it's, it's, it's a very big bridge to cross. Oh, the Labor Party conferences were feral over yeah. this. Also... The problem I have with the current debate is not the is not the you know the fact that we're talking about nuclear. That's fine. We can talk about nuclear. But the problem is a lot of what I see in the debate, and this goes to the issue of what I was saying a minute ago about the uh, about the opposition and costs and carbon price. Right. The problem I have with the nuclear debate at the moment is that nuclear is is often invoked. Has been you know for the whole sort of nearly thirty years I've been a reporter. It is invoked at a point in time where people hostile to climate action mm. want to slow down the pace of change. Mm. Now, now, that's the at, context here, isn't it? Because well, clearly what we're seeing with the, you know, we can, we can get to this, the transmission line yeah. pushback in the regions, the Nats are really feeling that championing this, um, you know, anti-wind and solar because of the transmission line issue and latching onto nuclear as, as the, as yes. you say, the, the magic alternative. Well, but, but it's such, look, are, are we into transmission, David, now? Because, look, I'm, you know, I'm very well, we'll happy come, to go, we'll go into transmission, transmission in, a, in but, a moment. But I guess, yeah. stemming from what you're saying, Peter Dutton said the other day, he sort of let slip, though of course no one ever lets anything slip really, uh, that there seems to be internal polling suggesting attitudes, community attitudes, particularly amongst younger voters, is changing towards nuclear you know, as you've been discussing their their Murph. So there seems to be a change of attitude. So he thinks the moment might be right. But as you say, now in opposition, it's hard to develop really detailed costings. But, you know, the, the shadow minister suggests that the, the costs of this are all up front. And once you, you know, work it out over a lifetime of a of a modular reactor, it changes. But this is a long-term process. There's, these reactors aren't built and operating anywhere well, properly in the world no, yet. No, exactly. But it seems to be feeding into this thing, which, you know, as David David mentioned the coalition is 
stoking as much as they can the fury we're seeing, and let's go to it now, over the transmission lines, which need to be rolled out. This Labor's rewriting the nation. If we're going to get to 82% renewables by 2030, we need not just a lot more renewables built, solar farms, wind farms, we need to be able to get them into the grid. And that means 10,000 kilometres of transmission wires. It means building a lot more, for instance, offshore wind farms. And regional communities don't want it. They're furious well, <laughs> about it. And the government or AEMO or somebody seems to have really made a hash at the early stages of any kind of local consultative process. Obviously, you can argue whether or not the transition at the local level is being handled optimally or not. That's a completely legitimate argument. But the point is that we get to a point in any transition where you collide with nimbyism, you know, and it is it is ridiculous, I think, to suggest that people will love a nuclear reactor but somehow will be hostile to <laughs> offshore wind. I mean, it, look, it's ridiculous. This whole, this is, look, can I get cranky for a minute? Yeah, go for Would it. you mind? Because this stuff actually matters. Now, the coalition at the moment is running a jihad about transmission. This is the same coalition that was, in fact, rolling out transmission in support of the grid. Angus Taylor supported the Marinus Link. He supported the the transmission to basically power in Snowy 2.0 to the grid. He supported the Hume Link. He supported the Kerrang Link. He supported Energy Connect. Why? Because we need transmission mm. in order for people to have power in their homes. Now, strangely, the same group of people who once basically were rolling out their own transmission agenda are suddenly now fairly opposed to transmission. I mean, could partisan politics be involved in this spread? Do you oh. think? The other thing that I need to say, sorry, the, the cranky pants are oh, well and truly Murph on here. we've missed you. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, they're on and they're staying on. So we not only have this rank partisan hypocrisy about what is actually required in order to power the nation from the alternative government of Australia, then we get into this, again, absurd fantasy where apparently nuclear power plants won't require transmission in order to fit them into the grid. <laughs> now, I know Ted O'Brien says, oh, we just put them in where the coal plants used to be and then it's fine. Mm. Well, sure, maybe in some cases it will be fine in the event that small modular reactors are ever commercially scalable, which hasn't happened yet. But the point is the coalition supported additional transmission when they were the government because the grid as it stands now needs more transmission. Yeah. And that's even before we get to hooking renewables into the grid, Fran, which and, was your point. And, and I think it's worth noting too that the, um, the, real, the reality is that the transmission task is so much more acute now and it's going to be, have to be rolled out so much more quickly it, and, that, and that always tramples on community feelings really and, and shortens the engagement potential because the coalition in government did drag their heels on this. They did drag their heels well, on that's, transmission. Well, that's the point. AEMO's been saying for years, uh, guys, you know, politely, uh, guys, could we just get the transmission rolling just a little bit faster. You know, this is an issue now. This is not a future issue. This is a present issue. Murph, it's lovely to have you back with us. Thanks for joining us and no um, we'll Thanks, get Murph. you back again soon. See ya. See ya. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. The bells are ringing. So many questions. It's time for question time. And this week's is an audio question from Jess. So much of the conversation about whether The Voice will be a success or a failure is based on statistics from the polls. But I've never been polled. My family has never been polled and none of my friends have ever been polled. 
So how do they know with any confidence what I'm going to be voting for or what anyone will be voting for, for that matter? Good question, Jess. We put a lot mm. of confidence in them. I've never been polled. None of my family's ever been polled. David, how about you? Uh, no, I, I can't recall. Uh, it's a ever, science. Ever being, oh, I might have had a marketing thing. Anyway, but certainly not a political uh, poll. I'm, I'm sure you and I would get knocked out pretty quickly once we uh, tell them our, our, our jobs, friend. But uh, look, it's a very common question. I've never been polled. How can we trust these things? Yeah. Look, um, I, you know, I, I know a lot of pollsters have spoken to them over the years, and particularly after 2019, when the pollsters did get it wrong uh, in predicting that you know Bill Shorten and Labor would win that election, there was a lot of work done after that to um, really improve the way they um, put together these things, uh, and in particular the way they weight uh, their samples. Uh, they included a lot after that, and this came after a, a, a bit of a polling fail um, globally on things like Brexit and Trump and so on. Um, to, to better weight, um, from my understanding, um, education outcomes as well as the, all the things are already weighting, like uh, And what does that mean, and, David, weighting? Uh, it means making sure your sample size reflects the demographic you're trying to represent. So the, whether it's a state or a national poll, um, you need to weight uh, the sort of educational outcomes that the sample you're talking to uh, have to, to reflect what the population uh, has. So you're not just talking to university educated people in your poll or not just talking to, um, you know, um, people who only made it to year 10 or 12, um, as well as all the other things they do to weight polls, whether it's gender, whether it's age, whether it's geography of where you live, uh, income levels and so on. But that, So they added in a few um, new things to better weight the polls and they certainly have been a lot more accurate, I think, uh, since then at a state and federal level, a lot of the polls. Now, I might have mentioned this earlier, referendums are a bit different though to elections. Uh, so there is a perhaps a higher degree of uncertainty uh, around a lot of the polls here, uh, simply because this is not something we do very often. And it is a little bit different when you walk into the you know, ballot box to um, uh, vote in a referendum compared to an election. You're not bringing that baggage of your voting history, your family's voting history, all of these things um, to uh, an individual question. So, does that mean we should trust the polls? I, I, I don't know. I think young um, people, I mean, I've, I've heard this a lot, actually, as I've been um, reporting on the referendum, people saying we well, can't trust the polls because they don't count young people.